Dear listeners, welcome back to the Thunderdome. This is the Macworld Podcast. I am your host, Glenn Fleischman, a senior contributor to Macworld. And joining me, surprise, surprise, well, not so much because she's here almost every week, is the executive editor of Macworld, Susie Oaks. Hello, Susie. Hello. How's it going? It's going great. How are you? I love your attitude. It's good. It's good. <laughs> it's good. I'm, uh, you know, moving along. I'm uh, in the uh, end. I launched a Kickstarter campaign last week to let I up. saw that. We're going to link that up. Oh, That's... excellent. Thank you. But I was just thinking, Let me I, make I, a note. I think the best time to launch, launch Kickstarter campaigns is during the apocalypse, don't you? Because it gives people hope. <laughs> <laughs> yes. May or may not be the apocalypse. Depends on Rebellions your point of view. Rebellions are built on hope. Exactly. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to let a press print a book because it's the future. And I'm exploring, I'm going to be the designer in residence for 2017 at the School of Visual Concepts in Seattle, which is a block from the Amazon. Well, I discovered, so you know these biodomes Amazon's building in Seattle? Did you see any pictures of this? I think I've heard of that. They're yeah, cool. yeah. First, the first proposal was like, wow, these things are really going to stick out. They're in an area in which there's no tall buildings or anything around them. And they look really weird, like Buckminster Fuller had a terrible nightmare and created this. And they're going to be full of biodiversity plants, whatever. In the intervening time since they floated the plan, giant buildings have gone up all around. So now it looks like a small feature on the landscape. And they're, oh, they're cool. actually really cool. Uh, and they're going to be full of um, – like. Rare plants. There have there employed people um, around the Seattle area to be growing plants. They have stuff that's uh, they temporarily co-located the entire University of Washington like horticulture collection when they were rebuilding a greenhouse. So it's actually been a very good citizen of the community thing, and it's going to be really cool. It's this amazing greenhouse like thing that's going to be available to the company for meetings and people will go work there, and it's going to be kind of cool. So the place where I'm going to do letterpress teaches digital communications and marketing and design, but also has a full letterpress printing shop that's as up-to-date as you can be in 2017. And it is one block from the Amazon Domes, which I discovered, I did not know this, despite living in Seattle, are called the B-Balls after Jeff Bezos. So there you go. <laughs> is that too risque for podcasting? I have a I question, know. though. Yes? Do you have to grow a mustache while you're making your letterpress book? Letterpress is not steampunk, so and it's not. I, I do not have to. I don't have to it's write a penny for a thing. It's a little hipster. I don't have to write a penny for a thing. You're bicycle. making something with your hands. I know that's, that's very hipster. Almost unacceptable. But the the fun part is you have to drink out of a jar. No, it's it's so very. <laughs> what's wonderful? It's very non hipster because it's it's actual it's it's actual craft instead of fake craft where you think you're sort of making a thing that looks like a throwback you're actually printing they not. can do a lot with these jars they make them into vases they you can put your mustache grooming tools in one i'm sorry I'm it's sorry. cool it's cool though they're actually there's some cool jar companies so the project i'm doing is it's, i'm going to be exploring this year by uh this is a part-time thing i'm doing along with my technical writing and other work is uh i'm going to be exploring. like you're not quitting are you no i'm still this is yeah, there's a lot of money in letterpress let me tell you about the money that's in letterpress um but i'm going to be exploring you can the just print it right the, like if you get really good <laughs> The interstices, interstices. We'll talk about that after the podcast. Between, yeah, don't get, don't get the Secret Service riled up now. Uh, I think they're busy. I'm talking about the interstices between digital analog because I'm going to print a book that's a collection of stuff I've written about type and punctuation, printing like quotation marks and whatever. Um, but the I'm going to print it. We're going to I'm going to design it in InDesign. It's going to be print or, or uh, turned into plates, printing plates through a process that that uses this rubberized material, this photopolymer material, where um, the InDesign, those folks in graphic design know about how this works. <clears throat> if you don't, it's kind of cool. So we'll take a sidebar. 
Before we get into the week's news, <laughs> just a little bit. So I'm just going to start deleting things from like, yeah, 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 the podcast no. list. Super bad. I think it's. Well, I think it's. In, I, I actually think this is interesting. Not We're just, just because not I'm talking doing about it. the patent stuff coming up. Oh then. my god! Yeah, this is, I, this, is, this is not to promote my own project, but I think it's a really cool thing. Where if you've been in graphic design for it any is period very of time, cool. I love hearing about it. Well, if you've been in graphic design for any period of time, you know that you know it started with you were able to output. You know, you could uh, uh, image. You used uh, image setters. That's where I got started in the early '90s. Or these image setters, and you dump output to RC or rosin coated film and then it was they were, or paper rather and you'd cut that up and then they would take pictures of that and make plates from that and then it was oh no we can actually output to film and the film was then directly exposed exposed to plate material that made offset plates then it was oh we can output to plates and now it's you can oh you can output to the press so all those steps have disappeared and made this very analog offset thing into an almost digital process with an analog thing at the end so letterpress actually went through the same process to some extent you can still handset type and find old wood and type there's still some hot metal out there that's been preserved and rebuilt so you can do that but you can also type you know design a book in indesign or design a poster you send it off to a service bureau that exposes they output film they expose it on this rubbery photopolymer material and everything that's exposed hardens they wash it away in this bath and then you're left with a letterpress capable printing plate and you put it on the press, and you print. So it's a digital to analog. It's a leap to conclusions, Matt. So I'm sorry, it's a digital to analog <laughs> process. So I'm going to be doing that for the book, but I'm also going to be exploring things like 2D laser cutting and uh, type design and other stuff. So it's going to be a lot of fun. A lot of fun. It sounds like a cool project. People but, should check it out. We'll link it up. Thank you. But it's uh, it, it was, it's going to be fun to do, and uh, it's a nice contrast to all the uh, screen stuff. I'm, I'm in a couple letterpress classes right now. I'm refreshing my abilities, and uh, it's fun to be surrounded by people who spend their days working at screens. They're all in uh, marketing or design or uh, UI or whatever, and they're like, oh, I just got to get my hands on something. So Yeah. It's it's a fun it's a fun thing to do, and especially like we're literally being a block from Amazon. Amazon Go, Amazon's new um, uh, self checkout uh, store. You know that. Yeah, we be- talked about that. Yeah. Yeah. So that is a block it's away. Right also, too. it's like right past the B balls is the Amazon Go a beta. It's only open to Amazon employees who've opted in. So um, all very exciting. So let's do our follow-up. So now that we, so you'll be like the teenager standing outside trying to get people buy to buy him liquor, but I you'll be some, like, "Can you please buy me a robot thing?" I need some cheese. I need some blue cheese, about four ounces, please, and some crackers in a mason jar. In a mason jar. Uh, there's a company that makes great mason jar conversion kits, but uh, put lid on. Um, so follow-up from last week. Hey Susie, you can find your AirPods now in uh, the 10.3 beta. I know. I'm excited. iOS 10.3. Um, it's good, and uh, I think it's. Uh, it, it was surprising that they didn't do that originally because they're sort of expensive things and easy to lose. But um, glad they did it now. It's pretty cool. I mean, yeah, it was a little weird just because that w- that ended up being part of the story when AirPods launched. Like, oh, and it's sixty nine dollars if you lose one, don't lose one. Like that yeah. was like that became like sort of part of the narrative. And if they were like, oh no, you can just have it, you can just page it. That would have really, you know, that would have shut up a lot of people. So. They, so I haven't tried this since I don't have AirPods and I haven't installed mm-hmm. beta and I don't even know what technology is. No, wait, I haven't. The first two are true. Um, how does this work? Does it? Do they bleep at you? Do you hit a button and they bleep or does it tell you where they are? 
Uh, they bleep. So <laughs> if they're in Bluetooth range of any of your iCloud devices, not even particularly your phone, um, they will bleep. And uh, if they're in someone's ears, like if someone just you know took them, um, they'll start bleeping very quietly and oh, then bleep louder God. and louder. Then yes, go, yeah. Silent alarm activated. Yeah, yeah. And then if they're out of range, it will tell you where they left. You know, like where they were last seen. I see. So pretty good, like what you would expect from most Bluetooth tracking things. Um, and I hope that it's just the beginning of a trend because I would really like to find my pencil and find my Apple TV yeah, remote. Yeah. Those are both Bluetooth. Like we should be able to do this. And then I maybe um, uh, it, this is, I don't think this is in HomeKit yet. Like we, we've seen and reviewed a lot of like just little Bluetooth trackers you can stick on things. But if they could make those like a part of the HomeKit spec and just integrate with iOS as seamlessly as HomeKit uh-huh. is, you could put those like I would buy tons of those. You know, because I, I I don't really I lose my keys and stuff a lot, so these Bluetooth trackers are like right up my alley. But I've just never really gotten into them because everyone I've tried like I don't know it's clunky or I don't like the app or whatever. So. I just don't really stick with it, but um, yeah, if, if if that could become part of our home kit, I think you know they, that uh, market might finally catch on. There's no reason not to. You could make you could very easily integrate. I mean, the home yeah, kit, it's all, home kit's all Bluetooth. So. And, yeah, and home kit has. Uh, I mean, it's got um, home kit supports. Doesn't you can do Zigbee and uh, Wi-Fi with home kit? I forget. You can do Wi-Fi with home kit. It's right? Wi-Fi you, and Bluetooth. You have yeah, to have Bluetooth and then there's some hubs that kind of will do oh, a couple, right. They'll but convert yeah. or something like let yeah. you. Yeah, I just wrote a long piece for uh, TechHive that'll run at some point soon about the um, HomeKit ecosystem because I was, we were trying to sort out like, you know, is it ready? What's out there? And it's a really scattered bunch of stuff you can get. But if you really like lights that you can disco dance to, it's pretty cool. Um, but yeah, they could. For my uh, reading, it looks like they could really easily create a low power. Uh, Bluetooth tracking thing like you're talking about or a, a lost item thing, a tag, a tag. Um, Susie, follow, more follow-up. We have more exciting patent news. Yeah, I know you love patent news. Yay. I thought we were skipping the patent news. I'm oh, just no, kidding. No. <laughs> uh, very briefly, very briefly. Yeah, so Apple filed suit against Qualcomm not just here but also in China, which is interesting. Uh, China's intellectual property protection system in the past has been looked at askance, but it's, you know, they've gained more robust protections as Chinese companies have developed more valuable intellectual property as opposed to manufacturing stuff on behalf of others. So there's some interest there. And I think there's some requirements for being part of the, uh, the World Trade Organization. You have to have IP protections as well. So, uh, And Qualcomm says, Apple, they spent 15 minutes on uh, their analyst conference call decrying the merit of Apple's suit. There is no merit, they say, to this suit. Um, so that's boring, and we will hear more about it, I'm sure, at the wow. end. Wow. <laughs> I'm glad I didn't have to write up that call. I'd be like, seriously. Uh, that's a lot of I mean, it's funny. A lot of money at stake. Let's you know, the move Samsung on. stuff is still going on, and you've got, you know, just Nokia had sued Apple for, you know, trying to get the. I mean, if you were a shareholder sorry. and Apple was suing you for billions, you know, the company that you own for billions, like, you'd be a little freaked. So, yeah, anyway. Oh, I forgot. There was one bit of follow up that's not in our outline, <sighs> which was it's not about patents. It's not about patents. Okay. It's about. Um, I'll allow it. It's uh, we had that issue of uh, permissions uh, in apps for <laughs> contacts and things. Oh, yes. And one of our faithful listeners, hello, faithful listener, said uh, that we had gotten it wrong because Apple requires that uh, these these um, entitlements, I think they're called entitlements, I forgot the word for it, that when uh, an app asks, it has to declare the kinds of things it's going to ask. Uh, so it can't just suddenly, you know, insert that in the middle of the app somewhere without Apple having approved it as part of the process. Uh, it has to explain what it's doing. Like, hey, I need to use the camera. This app would like to have permit, you know, uh, allow this app to use camera. Uh, this is for scanning barcodes. And 
the reason I was confused about this is I know that I was approving uh, in iOS 10, which is where the requirement started to be added. I know I was using apps recently that said this would like to use the context. And maybe there was tiny type underneath that explained it, but I certainly didn't feel like it was a disclosure on the scale of what um, Android will do or Android, uh, uh, the Google Play Store shows. Um, but so this correction, it should apps are supposed to uh, tell you why they need permission, and you should be able to review that. So it's not just, hey, give me your camera, do whatever, or plopping up all kinds of stuff without um, knowledge, and it's part of the app review process that apps are... Um, they thought that was like new apps, right? And maybe like the apps that you were seeing like I might were, be seeing old versions. Had them for a while. Yeah, I might be seeing old versions that haven't been yeah. updated or I launched something and yeah, so and it's also possible like Or the you've bind- already given it all those permissions. Or yeah, no, you said it was asking I've seen for new things. Yeah, I think that it's also possible that there is like this um uh it, it may be a mental problem. Like I'm I am gonna have, next time I see one I'm gonna look <laughs> is I may believe I may just not read them. So I'm like, oh wants context tap to my mind I can picture the several dialogues I'd seen since having that discussion, none of them had any text that explained anything. And now I'm questioning my own perception and memory. <laughs> so yep. we'll see. Uh, but that is, I think that's a great move forward. And that's that was introduced in iOS 10. And even the developer guidelines show you have to specify the you know specific permissions you want. The enti- uh, not entitlements. I forget if that. There's entitlement is a different thing. Uh, and then uh, you have to provide some text and other details for each of those things. So. Yeah, a classic one was like photo editing apps wanting like your location and that like, like, you know, on its face that could be a little creepy. But then when you're like, oh, no, it's just like all your photos are geotagged and it can't do anything with that. You know, it can't even read that geotag unless you give it like location permission or something. So like they usually have a very, you know, innocuous uh, explanation. So I'm glad that Apple is having those things explained. Yeah. And there's actually I think uh, I am not a lawyer, I will say in advance. And uh, but there is a reason for pushing companies to make specific promises because then they've made a promise to you as a consumer. So if I use an app and I have a, you know, I've got a set of agreements with Apple, Apple has a set of agreements with the developer, the developer then presents a thing that says this app wants access to your camera in order to do blah. And if I look at their privacy policy it says we'll only ever do blah. Then I find out they're taking those pictures and re- using them in a- ads or something, then I have, I can probably file a civil lawsuit myself. Apple could take action against them, of course, for violating agreements. The FTC, because it was fraudulently misrepresenting how it was going to use private information, could then intervene. So Apple, by requiring more specific uh, either privacy policies or disclosure, gives uh, puts more teeth in the ability for enforcement, but it also means the companies are more unnoticed. They're like, okay, I had to make a promise. Now, if we violate this, we're doing this knowingly, and it puts us into this almost criminal category as opposed to negligent category or something. I think that's good. Yeah. Okay. Uh, more in patents. No, I'm kidding. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> so some future follow-up. We're recording this on Tuesday morning. And if you're hearing this, it means nothing interesting happened during the Apple uh, uh, <laughs> earnings call that's happening later on Tuesday. <laughs> this is uh, this is like a canary uh, – it's like those canary warrants uh, they have where uh, uh, the government can request information. And you can't say the government requested it, but you can leave a page up on your website or other things that say – the government 
has never requested information, if that page goes away. So this is a canary, uh, interesting earnings announcement. And we're going to re-record this later if we find anything that we think is so worthwhile. We'll get back on and, and talk. But um, I mean, like they never, they've been really repetitive lately. They don't, sometimes they'll say like, oh, and like this update is dropping on this day. Mm-hmm. But like that, you know, like that probably wouldn't be something that we would, you know, have to tell you on the podcast. Like we'll just write a story. Um, but yeah, like they're 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 just getting really repetitive, and they don't they don't talk about future products. Like they don't announce things, um, and they and they don't break out a lot of the the data that people really want them to break out. Like which iPhone sold the most, and how many Apple Watches have you sold? So. Mm-hmm. It's just it's they they're they're newsy for you know like what they are but they're not like stop the podcast presses and the poor editor so um we'll see yeah but yeah we'll we'll just in case and uh, tomorrow we'll have some analysis actually as, as you listen to this podcast there will be some crack analysis by Jason Snell um, who's going to do like the you know what does it all mean day two kind of story for us as he has been the last few quarters and he always does a kick ass job with that. Right on. So if you don't hear anything right now from Glenn and I, um, go go to the site and read what Jason has to yeah, say. Yeah, if you're hearing this right now, we thought it wasn't interesting enough to talk about it until next week. Is what we're saying. Well, it's also true. Like you know, there's a lot of things we expect, and um, I think it's going to be the. I think it's going to be the usual. I think it's going to be a uh, another quarter which people are slightly disappointed because it'll be a. It might be a record quarter, but we might not see enough much growth or any growth in various areas. We might still not see uh, iPad growth and and so forth. So. Um, Numbers. What are numbers? We're more about? about the products here at MacWorld than like the business stuff. Yeah, and it's hard to it's hard to know what's gonna you know it's nobody ever. I don't know. I was gonna say you didn't get rich. Well, that's not true. Some people did. I was gonna say you can't really predict what's gonna happen in the uh, Apple world because the stock doesn't move the way it does with other companies relative to how well it's doing. So Apple is still considered highly undervalued by some analysts because. It's um, revenue and profit continue to be strong, and even with some stalling, they still have you know good numbers. So some people think it's dramatically underpriced uh, compared to other technology stocks that have less upside potential. So you can't like whatever we say. It's like well, this happened. Like their stock goes down, it goes up, whatever. It's kind of um, it's kind of arbitrary. I, I think that people are a little unhinged still about Apple in the uh, in the investor world. Um, mm-hmm. Nothing we can do about that. Uh, I, want to hit- I think if you're a boring like buy and hold investor, it's probably a smart investment because they always make money. A boring buy and hold investor. That's a good phrase. Yeah. I like that. No, it's true. No, I mean, right. If you have, uh, if you're putting and it in your- That's the kind of investor I am. And I think everyone should be. But I, I, I actually don't invest in Apple because I can't invest in single stocks. Um, but yeah, I just do mutual funds. Anyway, this ends Susie's investment corner. <laughs> there's, a, there's a book by the fella at- um, uh, David Swenson, who is the or Swanson rather, who is the uh, uh, I believe he's still involved with, but he directed Yale's uh, investment fund for decades, and he wrote a book that he, uh, several years ago that I really like. That's about individual investment, and he he said he started writing it to provide some insight because he they, Yale had these ridiculous returns year after year, very consistent, very low cost. They didn't build. Harvard spends a lot of money, and you know I'm a Yale guy, so I'm deriding harder Harvard Harvard spent a lot of money um, on in uh, inv- like on management and they pay all these fees out and whatever and Yale had this much lower thing where everyone gets salaries it's much lower key and um, so they spent a lot less money and they had uh, you know typically similar returns or better or whatever so um, but he wrote this book anyone want to find it? it's uh, it's uh, David Swenson um, I have to find a title but uh, he set out to write a book that was um, trying to provide uh, 
advice for an average investor that was derived from what he'd learned as a, um, you know, doing what he was doing. And unfortunately, while he was researching the book, he basically decided the system was so biased against individual investors that there was no good advice he could offer, which is very sad. Uh, and so, uh, but he basically said, don't do market timing, don't invest in single stocks, you know, whatever. So yeah. Yeah, this book is called Unconventional Success. And it's a very, it's like, you know, use index funds, you know, go to Vanguard, which has the lowest fees, and they're a not-for-profit, and they pay their managers within certain ranges, and uh, blah blah blah. So, anyway, if you want some sensible advice, that's the kind of stuff I do. It's a yeah, so I do too. I you know, it's a time when I thought it made sense to try to mess around, and in the end, your best bet is to. Uh, his thing is, don't beat the market, meet the market, because the market on the whole produces good returns. So, if you're yeah, just yeah. trying to meet the market's average return over time, you will come out ahead because the market has, on average, come out well ahead of any other like individual investment strategy. The the reason Yale and these other outfits can make a lot more money is not just because they have access to special resources. That's part of it. It's also because they invest in illiquid things like real estate, like Yale owns forests and buildings. And, you know, I don't own a forest, not yet. Life goal. Uh, moving on to a different topic. I'd, I'd like to hit on this briefly because I think it affects our industry a lot. Um, <laughs> and I could, I could point to a tweet from uh, Marco Arment that's really great where he said uh, – to everybody who wants me to stop talking about politics and get back to tech, you know, let's sort out what's going on with that before I can, you know, in more colorful terms, uh, and then I'll get back to it. Um, so, you know, this last weekend, uh, the Trump administration put out a, uh, executive order that affected, uh, banned, uh, temporary ban on refugees and people from certain countries and had the implication of being a ban on Muslims from specific countries and, um, engendered a lot of different feelings in people, not all positive, mostly negative. <laughs> and, uh, the tech companies are particularly, uh, affected because many tech companies were, are founded or currently headed up by, uh, immigrants, uh, refugees, children of immigrants and refugees, um, including people from some of the countries affected. And, uh, for example, uh, Steve Jobs' father was, in fact, Syrian and his biological father. And even though he had no relationship with them during his life, uh, the reason Steve exists is because his father, I shouldn't say, well, I guess him particularly, not, I don't know if that makes sense, but his father was, uh, uh, I don't think it was a refugee, he was an immigrant to the U.S. and was allowed in. So a lot of different statements coming out from different companies. Uh, Google had a big thing where Sergey Brin and um, uh, what's his name? Uh, uh, Pinchall? I'm blanking on his name. The head of Sundar. Uh, Sundar, yeah. He, um, they both uh, addressed a Google group about this. Um, Google and, walked out yesterday. They had protests in the San Francisco and Mountain View campuses. Oh, that was that. What, oh, I know there was a big. There was like a big gathering. Yeah. Was walk out, and so the, those two. Uh, Sergey is uh, born in uh, Russia. Is an emigre, and um, I believe I'm not sure if they. I think Sergey was a refugee. I think. Well, yeah. Technically, I think he was. Or were they um, not a refugee or like a? Is that what you call somebody who is? Um, well, he he went to the airport and he said, "I'm here as a refugee." So, yeah, I like, think that's fair enough. He I mean, self-identifies as they, a refugee. That's perfectly fine. I think his family. I mean, they. I don't know if they fled but they escaped essentially you know they're escaping a hostile oh, yes. political situation a lot of these stories i am learning so much just by like listening and like listening to people's stories and like just stuff is like i had no idea that, that some of the the things people have gone through to like come to america oh and my god the, the stories you hear and you know jeff bezos's father was part of the uh pedro pan operation pedro pan or peter pan which was a uh 
took people, took children out of Cuba. The parents gave them away to get them out of Cuba in um, after the Castro Revolution. And that's why Jeff Bezos is in this country. His father met his mother here and um, he founded Amazon. And, you know, on, you know, so we have Steve Jobs, we have Sergey Brin, we have Jeff Bezos, we have um, the current head of Microsoft who was born in India. Um, we have, you know, the tech industry is full of both uh, leaders and uh, workers who are immigrants, who are temp- some are on temporary visas, some are on H-1B, some are refugees, some are children of. Um, and uh, so it hits home there uh, more than others, even no matter what the parameters are and whether in 90 or 120 days some of the provisions in this executive order are modified. Um, there's a lot of discussion. So we try not to be too political on this podcast. We're not trying to take a, a – uh, a stance, I guess we try. You know, we have our own opinions, but it's also, I think, it's. If you feel the other way, we can still be friends. Like yeah, we're not hating on anybody. Yeah, exactly. This isn't about, but I think it's important to bring it up as an issue because it affects the ability for, um, you know, affects the ability for the tech industry uh, is so dependent on immigrants and refugees, basically, and uh, and uh, uh, temporary, uh, you know, temporary workers who have specialized skills. So there's a lot of debate about whether H-1B is a valid program. And I have a lot of issues with it, including if you come here on an H-1B visa, that's the uh, immigration visa that allows people with specialized skills to come uh, as long as they are not replacing American workers. And there's issues about the abuse where essentially they're brought in and they, American workers retrain or train people who are in an H-1B and the American workers are fired. There was a case, a couple cases of that that are pretty ugly. There's the issue of... Um, for the H-1B workers, I have a friend who's from Canada on H-1B, and um, she's like, she's preparing, she doesn't want to leave the country, U.S. right now, and also she's kind of prepared a backup plan in case something changes, and she has to mm-hmm. essentially give up instantly, because if you're on an H-1B, if you lose your job and you do not have a new one arranged, you must leave the country immediately. It's, it's sort of cruel. Yeah. So, um but it's you know, and it's that that's like a, a what's indentured servitude, where if you can't get a new job lined up, which is difficult because you're on an H one B in the first place, uh, then when your job is over or you're fired or you um, are laid off, boom, you have to leave. So, yeah, it's almost like you should have a few more rights than than you do. But well, it um, seems like you should have time if you're already that valuable. Yeah, if you brought here, there should be a grace period for sure. Yeah. So you know, you, folks, you can read up on this. There's a lot of different things. IBM put out this very very lukewarm. Thing. Um, I, a box put out a very strong statement. So there's a lot of stuff across Netflix the political CEO spectrum. Reed Hastings called it un-American, yeah. which is the strongest statement I've seen from you know a major tech CEO. But yeah, I mean, and I've also there's also been sort of a little bit of like, well, why why is like why does the tech industry kind of you know held to the fire on this? Like why you know banking and other industries that are very international. I mean, like th- those they don't have to speak out and it's like tech really does try to put itself out there as like we change the world you know we have the big ideas we're like out to make the world better so you know now I've, i feel like they sort of do have a responsibility if if things are happening and and, and they have something to say about it to to speak up because that's part of uh changing the world and everyone should do that um speak up for what you believe in well it's also they're so they're the tech industry of all industries is so heavily dependent and has been rewarded yes, so heavily too. from so of all and places they lobby on behalf of you know they're always trying to get more h1b visas and yeah it's so yeah i mean they're they are entrenched in these specific uh, these specific issues as yeah. well as just, you know, the general, like we're changing the world. So yeah, 
it's it's super interesting and there's a lot of good information out there that isn't necessarily political that's just explaining like what's happening the history behind it um you know what refugees and immigrants already go through to get here so uh, we're not going to link anything up because, uh, you know, that that's not really our our thing. We don't we try not to get political, but like go go read some stuff <laughs> and it doesn't have to be slanted to one side Sorry. or another. It's but impossible like, not people. Yeah, because I mean, actually, what the big kerfuffle about this, if you read the analysis without again, without getting specifically political, is not necessarily that it's um, it, the way it's construed may be illegal and unconstitutional by many, many people's opinions. However, if it were written or rewritten appropriately, it may stand a constitutional and a legal test. Um, so it's something that may just be have to be dealt with in the future. Then you could argue about the justice or injustice of it as a separate thing. Right now, part of the kerfuffle was a lack of warning. There are, are hundreds of thousands, uh, potentially as many as 900,000 people around the world who don't know whether they can come back. Some of them are green heart holders, a yeah. lot of tech people. Um, it's a mess. Yeah. I mean, so so let's let's, if we take the politics out, you could just say this was a, like, any administration that did this at any time, what a horrible mess with no preparation for so many people, um, you know, uh, who are uh, legitimate uh, permanent residents of the United States or have every expectation they were going to be or should. Um, and it's a disruption for business. So, you know, different companies think Microsoft had a couple hundred people, Google had a hundred something odd who were overseas and affected by this uh, directly. Um, so let's just say it was a mess. It wasn't done in an orderly fashion and it's disrupting business and tech companies have a lot to say about that plus the uh justice equality aspect of it or uh, too uh speaking of tech companies speaking of reviews of things maybe um this is actually a, sort of a big small story in the apple world which is there's a big change in app reviews app store reviews uh, which kind of hit a few days ago and i almost missed it i didn't realize I saw some coverage of it. I was like, wait, what is this? And it's Apple has uh, changed the rules for how iOS and uh, the new version of Sierra will um, uh, where how apps will be allowed to present uh, review information to users like, hey, please review this app and how it's going to show up in the App Store review section. Um, I don't, are you briefed on this, Susie? I was kind of fascinated by it. So I read quite a bit last week about it. Uh, not really. I mean, the biggest thing that I saw was that, uh, you know, app developers are going to be able to reply to reviews and like do so like publicly. Yeah. So if people write those terrible reviews that are like, this app doesn't do a thing that it was never meant to do one star, the developer can say like, well, actually this app wasn't ever meant to do that. And, you know, like <laughs> they can kind of correct things that are just misinformation. So that way, and that helps users too, because when you go through, you're just like, oh, this one star guy I didn't know what he was talking about. I can just, you know, I can dismiss that. I can dismiss, um, you know, apps that raise that same point, even if the developer didn't, you know, have time to like follow up with them each yeah. individually. Like it's really going to give you a lot more information because like now developers are putting that kind of stuff in the in the uh, update notes if they can or they're writing blog posts or but, you know, a lot of people don't don't see that. So this this really could help. I, you know, maybe I don't think it, it's I don't know. Do you know if it's there's going to be any kind of effect on like the aggregate score? I would guess oh, not because that would be the, too hard to figure out. Yeah, this is the pain is that um, even though. Well, let's well, let's get back to that in a second because I think it's so there. So uh, developer right, uh, people will be able to edit their reviews. 
developers. Oh, that's big. Yeah, so you'll be able to. Now, I think, I don't know if you ha- can only edit it if a developer responds, but a developer can respond to individual reviews, and then the user can edit the review and the developer can edit their reply. So if something gets resolved or someone says, oh, I didn't understand that, I've change this review because I didn't know this wasn't, you know, or the developer took care of it or they got in touch with me and it's solved, which is great. Um, individual apps can only prompt no more than three times a year a for year. review. And yeah. it doesn't get reset with new versions, which is cool. And the app of uh, the review prompt can be in the app. It doesn't take you into the app store anymore. So it'll That's be building nice. it. Yeah. So it'll be intra app, which will be less than a pain. It'll just like open a little sheet and you can like fill it out and post your review. Exactly. Without and having to switch. They're transitioning. So this will be the only way at some point, they haven't said when, uh, this will be the only way that apps can prompt for review. And there will be a, uh, a device-wide kill switch if you never want to be prompted by any app for a review. So wow. if you're just like, I never want to see this, I'm never going to write a review, this kind of like ad blocking. If you're never going to click on an ad, then no one's making money off you really, maybe a little bit in impressions or something, but it's pretty slight. You really only make money from people who sometimes click on ads. Uh, so I think that's cool. So the thing you're asking is, and I think this is a pain, is Apple, as far as we know at the moment, from what they've said, um, one of the big one of the reasons developers push so hard for reviews is whenever they come out with a new version, it resets the uh, the default version of what you see of this version of the app. So you release a three point one point one, and there are zero reviews. And then someone gives mm-hmm. it a one star review, and you have a one star review on your app. Where if someone clicks all reviews for the app, they might see that's you know four and a half or four point seven score. So that's yeah. something Apple has to do. They need to also um, provide a better overall uh, mix, like a, a weighted version of that. So if someone gives a one-star review, but there's 7,000 other reviews that average 4.5, what's displayed shouldn't be a one-star, right? So Well, they, they sometimes you'll see, like, we don't have enough ratings for this version to give it an aggregate score. Like, they do, they do make it, like, rack up a bunch before they will average them. Yeah. But still, I mean, yeah, anything they can do to help developers, like, not get screwed over by, you know, angry slash wrong reviewers. Because <laughs> <laughs> most people who leave reviews, I'm sure, are, you know, totally genuine. But you know, a few people can kind of, you know, get in there and mess it up. It's true. It's very easy to skew it. And yeah, so even if there are 10 reviews and there's enough for it to show a score, it's like a couple people giving a one star and a couple people, you know, the rest being four Mm -hmm. drives it down. So, and it really, you know, and the research shows it really, the reviews really help for cold calls when someone's um, just searching and they find an app and it's got what seems to them to be bad reviews. The thing that's displayed in the search results, for instance, they don't pursue it. And uh, that's a shame. Speaking of reviews, hey, wait a minute. I have a transition. Uh, the LG 5K has been shipping. How was for a your bit. transition from the last one? <laughs> Previously on this transition, yeah, I'm so good at this. You'd think I was a professional or something. I think uh, you're uh, very good at it. Oh, that's very good. That's very good. So are you. Thank you very much. The LG monitor that Apple has been selling, the Thunderbolt 3 LG 5K, which works with the new MacBook Pro models from 2016. A uh, couple interesting things about that. A few days ago, story came out from a Reddit thread. Apple has deleted all of the 5K, LG 5K reviews from their site. And um, that's a terrible thing because, gosh, we really, you know, they're suppressing people's opinions. People have a lot of negative things to say. Turns out 
Apple had not turned on reviews <laughs> for the LG 5K because it had just started to ship. And people went back through uh, like the Internet Archive, the Wayback Machine, and discovered that they could see reviews on other pages, not there. And, and um, the word came out that, no, Apple had not enabled reviews. Now it has. However, people were saying a lot of negative things about it in Apple forums and elsewhere. So it wasn't that uh, – but there was this idea that Apple was suppressing bad reviews. So that appears not to be the case. However, a lot of negative reviews. Um, my friend uh, Jeff Carlson, who was uh, written for Mac World, writes for Tidbits, other publications. He posted a um, a photo yesterday. I don't know if he posted it on Twitter or not. He was at an Apple store and someone was returning two LG 5K monitors and Ooh. saying they were pieces of bleep and um, it might be crap though. That's okay. Not not the other bleep, uh, which is bad. And you can just read a lot. There's just a. I think it's a very particular technology and it may not be as robust implementation. One thing that came out, a story we just put up on Tuesday at Macworld by Ian Paul, that if you use an LG 5K within about six and a half feet of a Wi-Fi router, uh, the shielding on the LG 5K's Thunderbolt 3 cable is not designed uh, well enough to suppress interference. Um, and that's, yeah. it's always been, I mean, it's funny. Most people don't have a Wi-Fi router right next to their computer. You usually stick it somewhere else. So if you do, this harkens back to when the 2016 MacBook Pros first uh, shipped. This fellow posted this video, does a tech show. Uh, he posted this video of him having Wi-Fi in his machine disabled when he plugged in a USB-C cable, a dongle or something. What it turns out is USB-C, if you go to USB, uh, USB specs, USB-3 can actually... Uh, interfere with Wi-Fi. It's a known problem, and there's some shielding issues and whatever. But there, uh, it's uh, there are design issues about where you put Wi-Fi antennas relative to USB-C. So it's not our USB uh, ports. So it's not a new or unknown problem. But that was an issue, and I don't know that Apple made a mistake or the adapter was like a cheap adapter without sufficient shielding. I've forgotten which one it was. But um, uh, when you're use, transferring that much data, you wind up creating unintentional uh, radio frequency uh, side effects. And so shielding is critical to prevent interference with Wi-Fi. So you can, your USB-C can interfere with your Wi-Fi. Your Wi-Fi can interfere with your Thunderbolt 3. So hooray! Is that something they can fix? So... Well, the LG the 5, they could update. I, I don't know if they ship a, I mean, it could be, I don't know if the cable is integral or it plugs in. If it's integral, then they'd have to do a recall if they felt it was important enough. Um, I suspect it only affects a relatively small number of people. And I also suspect that it was probably really, really irritating for people to figure this out because they didn't understand why it wasn't working. You know, when yeah, that you would have, be weighed on my troubleshooting list. Oh, yeah, why it's don't like, you oh, move it's your router? What like, if I turn no. off Wi-Fi? What if I unplug the Wi-Fi router? But somebody, you know, if you do the binary testing, you try to unplug everything around you. And I'm sure people with MacBook Pros and like these giant monitors don't actually use Wi-Fi that much at all. Yes, they do. Everyone well, needs Wi-Fi all the time. But do you have your router near um, near the issue? I mean, L the router is really close to the TV. I was always wondering because oh. like the so the cable comes out of the floor and then uh, it goes into the cable. I guess I could. You no, know, the cable comes out of the floor right by where the TV is, but it doesn't go into the TV. It goes into the cable modem that goes to the router, and then um, so it's right next to the TV. Oh, oh! I should point out too. This is uh, vaguely related. I uh, I want to let people know that some point soon there will be a uh, uh, Apple LED cinema display adapter dock article that I wrote. I tested with a 27-inch uh, Apple LED cinema display, so that uses Mini DisplayPort, Mini DisplayPort connector, and the DisplayPort standard. 
not a Thunderbolt 2 connector in the Thunder in DisplayPort over Thunderbolt, because that's not confusing. Um, so this is that one generation between D DVI and before Thunderbolt 2. So if you have a Thunderbolt Apple Thunderbolt display, you can just use a Thunderbolt 2 to 3 adapter to use yes. it with a MacBook Pro, and you can't use that with a, a uh, over USB-C, and you can't use that with a 2015 or 2016 uh, MacBook because that lacks Thunderbolt support. So I tested, uh, there were a whole bunch of these adapters, a lot of them coming from sort of no-name companies or uh, companies that have like no other products or make weird adapters uh, from China, a lot of them being shipped very slowly. And then so stock started showing up. So I tested several uh, things that got good reviews on Amazon, uh, the ones that people had already tested themselves. So I didn't see negative reviews. Like I tested this with my MacBook and it didn't work. And uh, I tested both with a MacBook and a MacBook Pro with Touch Bar and was able to get uh, four recommendations, two adapters. One has passed through USB-C power. One is just an adapter, so better for a MacBook Pro. So it's USB-C to mini DisplayPort. Uh, uh, a two cable solution that works fine. If you can't get one of those adapters, there's a, you can plug in two different cheap adapters. And then there's a dock from Cal digit that has a display port, uh, uh, jack in it that you can use a simple adapter with as well. So people have tons of options and Susie, I don't know how many of those, uh, can LEDs. you send me one? Because I have a cinema display on my desk that I have not even turned on since I, I started using the MacBook Pro. We'll sort we'll sort it out. I got a package. I got a box or a bag full of them. I'll, I'll drop one in the mail to you. Uh, and so I think Roman editor Roman Loyola is working on that. But uh, the screen piece. is so icky compared to the screen on the computer. So icky? You think it's what low res or? I mean, it's just like this. The Retina screens just ruin you for every other oh, yeah, screen. Yeah. Although what's interesting, the twenty-seven inch. Uh, the 27 inch display is really good. It's a 1440p, so it's still considered, um, it's not it is pretty retina. nice. It's better than 1080p. It's so big, it's so crisp, and it's uh, the resolution is high enough that it is. I was playing videos on it, you know, from a couple feet away at a reasonable viewing distance. And I thought, this isn't bad. And I have a 4K screen that I use all the time. So the text, oh, okay. the text isn't as crisp, but the video looked really good. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think just being that slightly higher resolution, like 1440p and th that big makes a difference. But Susie, I don't know how many of those monitors were sold with the, the mini display port only, uh, but there must be hundreds of thousands. I've gotten so much email about this yeah. and people were so excited when the adapters started to ship. And so you can pay between about 15 and $35 for what you need if you don't want to dock. And that's fantastic. And then that monitor becomes useful or you can buy them used for, um, they still retain a lot of value. You can spend like 300 to $500 to buy a, you know, very good working condition version of that on eBay or other places and just throw a, you know, $15 adapter on. You've got a, a good monitor that's cheaper. It is a nice one. monitor. So um, I had to crack open my MacBook Air the other day because I needed to make a backup of my iPhone and I didn't have my iPhone to USB-C cable. Anyway, um, and the screen like just looked so crappy compared to the new screen, but that keyboard was like typing on just a bunch of angels' faces. It was so great. I, how do angels feel about that when you type on their faces? That's, I mean, it's good for you. Is they it good love for the it. Angels? They love it. Angels. angels. It's like a, a butterfly. It's like a, with a butterfly kisses, an angel uh, typing. Is that a Paul Simon song? I've got angels no. typing on the soles of my face or oh, something. Okay, I thought you were going to ask if butterfly kisses was, and I was going to say, no, no, no. Oh, freak out on you, Sarah McLaughlin. 
No, it's some. <laughs> ugh, ugh. Just, Let's not not even acknowledge the existence of that song. I don't even know the song. That's good. It's the worst. I was just saying. I've got angels. It's as bad as that on my face. Christmas shoes. Oh no, anyway. you're typing on the you're typing on the angel spaces. I'm yeah. typing on the angel spaces and they like really high like five it. and a million angels. Oh my anyway, God. it's good. So next up, theater mode. I see in the notes here you wrote no, no. I didn't write that. No, did I write that? You must have written that. I must have been. Uh, I didn't write that. You wrote theater mode, no, 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 if it's what we think it is. And then I started writing after that. I think I was writing using um, the surrealist method of unconscious writing. It just yeah, that wrote was there when I opened this. Oh, some point, I must have been really angry about it at some point. But um, it's, I, I, John Gruber posted, by the way, he's running uh, watchOS beta. And he said it has theater mode in it, I guess, already. And like theater mode to use your device in a theater movie theater is terrible theater mode to make your phone not do all kinds of crap or your watch in the theater that lights up and irritates people now that's cool that's okay yeah i thought it was theater mode so you could use your device in the theater i mean developer betas really aren't supposed to be discussed but um <laughs> <laughs> hey, somebody else discussed it that's the thing yeah i don't know um, um, so my dream theater mode would be just like, uh, so I go to like these presentations, right? And um, I'm always so paranoid that I forgot to turn something off. Um, last time I think a call came through on my watch, even though I had my phone silenced. Like it's just, I'm always, that's like my worst nightmare is that something, something's going to go off when yeah. I think I have everything silenced. And then the other part is that I forget to turn it back on. So um, I'm not really going to talk about what's in theater mode now. But what I would love for theater mode is um, one switch that would turn off all the devices. Like just, you know, one switch on the phone. And it's like, okay, everything that you're signed into, I'm you know, that's here, I'm going to silence. And then it turns itself off after a couple of hours. Oh, yeah. Or, or the other thing would be, I, here's geofencing. If you walk into a movie theater, have the thing say, hey, you're in a movie theater. Would you like to enable... Uh, or tap this, if you don't tap this in 10 seconds, it goes into theater mode as long as you're geofence. I mean, wouldn't that be cool? Like That would be cool too. Like, I mean, I just got upgraded. Uh, I sound so excited. I just upgraded this terribly written app that connects to my Honeywell home alarm system mm-hmm. and um, allows remote control. And it's actually, it's, it's really badly like graphically designed. It looks like it was designed on some very old weird system, but it works just fine. And I updated it and had this stupid thing. You can't paste in the field. It made you start a new password. So I create a password. And I can't copy and paste. I'm like, ah, but then I get it set up and says, Hey, do you want us to enable geofencing? So if you leave your house and you get more than X feet away without having enabled your alarm, we'll put up a notification. And I said, yes, yes, I want that. That's actually totally useful. I don't always want to turn it on. I might have family home, so the alarm doesn't need to be on. But I thought, what a useful feature. And, you know, we had a lot yeah, of Yeah, might talk- as well ask. Yeah. We talked about geofencing a lot a few years ago because Apple added um, options in different apps. And uh, I wrote a piece of... Last year, about Zill or Redfin rather had updated its uh, listing app so you could, if you were a homeowner or a Redfin, I think they have agents of a sort, you could uh, set up an iPad with geofencing information in their app, and it would, when people arrived at the house for a viewing, it would pop up if they had the Redfin app installed. It would bring up the thing, and I was like, oh, you know, it would push a card to let them open the app or something. It was really cool, and I thought, well, this is a great use because it's volitional. Someone's there to do that thing, mm-hmm. and by the same token, like a theater mode. Like I would love to go into a theater and say, hey, do you want to go into theater mode? I'm like, yes, that's exactly. I don't want to have to swap control center and whatever. I could just tap yes. 
Um, the movie theater I go to actually has an app, and oh. if you put your there's like a prompt in the previews. It's like okay, open this app and like you know put it in theater mode now, and then if you leave your phone in theater mode like through this app, and it like you know dims the screen. I think it silences your phone. Yeah. Um, and then if you leave it there for the whole movie, the app like knows that you left it on. You didn't turn it off. You get like a coupon for a free small popcorn the next time you come. Oh, back. that's worth like fifty dollars. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yes. <laughs> I think it's Cinemark. So if you go to a Cinemark oh, cool. theater, you've probably heard about it as well. I, I'm a, actually, I've become an, I'm addicted to um, movie apps because if you use them consistently, you actually get a very good return on investment, like about 10 or 15% of your ticket price back in free tickets and popcorn and other stuff. Um, small tip. Yeah, I would use, uh, there's a, a Fandango is integrated with uh, Royal, uh, whichever Royal oh, okay. something whatever they are called. And um, I like their apps are actually pretty good. And so I'm always like, and Oh, this is a tip. I think I mentioned this before, but uh, it's um, if you use Fandango and you're all registered up, they will let you get a refund or an exchange of your ticket before the screening starts. It is the most wild thing. I like you, like I've had a couple times had to cancel out on a movie and you just hit a button and they give you your money back. When oh, you can't cool. get, I know. Isn't that amazing? So you just have to buy through Fandango, but whatever. So you're paying the convenience fee to purchase, but it's like insurance. I'm like, all right, I, I'm happy to pay the insurance because I've a couple times gotten, you know, some, once I think the whole family couldn't go. So we got like $40 back or something. Yeah. Or, if a uh, kid throws up in the car or yeah, something. It's like, like uh, any time up until the screening starts. It was two hours before, I think, at one point. Now it's There's any a massive time. protest that's shut down the freeway. Exactly. <laughs> I wouldn't know anything about that. It happens. Wouldn't be nothing. Um, so that's theater mode for now. We'll have more information when it's no longer in developer beta secret mode, but we can talk about things. <laughs> we can talk. I haven't run the developer betas, so I can talk about things I read that people had talked about publicly, even if they shouldn't have. Um, a couple, just a couple last things. Insecure login warning. This is kind of a cool thing I've written about in private eye in uh, months and years past is uh, browsers are getting more and more uh, tight. Something uh, word, word redacted about uh insecure sites and insecure logins and all kinds of things. So the browsers will tell you like, Hey, this certificate uh, is using a different standard. We're not going to let you let's outdated. We're not letting you log in. You have to bath, or you have to not letting you uh, visit the page or um, you go to a site. Uh, Chrome is getting really, really strict about it. You go to a site that isn't encrypted and it, or some of the page isn't, it gives you severe warnings um, and everything is moving to HTTPS. Uh, even for normal sites that you're just visiting casually and you're not even logging in. Like that is the new thing. So the, this little bit of news is just that uh, both, uh, not Safari, unfortunately, which is a shame, but Chrome and Firefox are, will, are going to start or have started warning users if you ha go to a page that has a plain old HTTP, uh, which is a non-encrypted page, to uh, log into the site. So it actually has an idea about it and it tells you that you shouldn't do this. Um, so if login fields appear, uh, Chrome will, um, let's see, I forget, there's different warnings, but like yeah, Google's browser, Chrome will show that it, an information icon that says not secure. Uh, Mozilla is gonna add, or has added a thing that will, um, that will alert that as well. So Safari is a little bit behind in some of these more uh, ahead of the curve things, but eventually we're going to all the browsers are going to help you by, instead of making you examine everything and figure out what's going on, will warn you, hey, this is probably not a cool thing to do. So I, I dig that. I dig that. Um, last story. 
We're at the end. Airport alternatives. Uh, I wrote this piece because we had heard that Apple might be discontinuing all of its Wi-Fi base stations, and we still have no confirmation of that. But uh, they didn't deny it, though. And sometimes when something comes it. out that's just wrong like that, they'll say, "Oh no, that's what we deny it." I will sometimes get a little birdie sending me a little birdie email saying, "You know," and I'm like, "Oh, they give us a little guidance sometimes behind the scenes." to, uh, you know, shift the uh, billiard balls one way or the other. So <laughs> something's going on. Um, so I had not heard no little birdies tweeted at me uh, via email or otherwise that this wasn't true. And we also, some of the, the information that came out from some sources was that members of the airport product team had kind of left and gone to other teams. There's nobody actually working on product. It's hard to make a product. Uh, so it seems likely Apple's gotten out of so many businesses that aren't core to it and like the the monitors now that they're having LG they're selling LG monitors directly not surprising to be out of the Wi-Fi business although it's a bummer because I'd I'd rather I think they could do cool things that would enhance the iOS and Mac experience if they made routers um, especially with AirPlay but they don't Uh, they so nothing's been new for quite a while Uh, so Susie you and I talked about you're like hey would you write something about maybe I said I would like to write something about who knows History is lost uh, about what alternatives are out there. So I went through a, a number of things like different uh, how to find uh, replacement routers if you want basically exactly the same kind of standalone routers that you can link together that uh, of the kind that Apple makes, but cheaper and with more features. Uh, and then there's also a number, oh my gosh, a number of mesh systems now, which are multiple base stations that all talk to each other and reconfigure each other and their power automatically. And I listed a bunch of those. TechHive has tested several. They're testing more. Some of them are quite expensive, uh, but they are self-reconfiguring. So you put them in, you plug them in, and you never have to touch them again. And they have very nice smartphone app front ends. Uh, so you're not sitting there with a web-based administrative front end that is incomprehensible, like some of the very cheap but good base stations out there that replace like the airport extreme. Uh, and uh, Michael Brown at TechHive just reviewed the uh, the Orbi, Netgear Orbi system, which I think is kind of overpriced and he likes it, but it's not mesh, um, but it does have some advantages of having a lot of ethernet ports. So if you're plugging in other devices, you go to, te- we, we've linked to that on macworld.com. It's in the show notes. Um, he also wrote about uh, D-Link, had a setup that's hub and spoke. So it's kind of more conventional, but it's going to switch to a mesh approach in the future. Um, but you can basically, what you'll find is that uh, most. I that was pretty interesting that there was one that was going to be like, you could pick. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then <laughs> like it was going to get a software update that would let it go mesh. Well, so yeah, because in some cases, if you've got two units, I don't know if mesh is as good with two. If you have three or more, it starts to get useful because then you just sort of uh, place them. We were talking about how, you know, some of them blink green and some give you better advice and whatever. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Uh, but mesh is the future because it's kind of the intelligent way you're not as a human being you're not trying to understand what's going on with radio signals you just put them in it's just right now you could spend anywhere from 200 to 600 dollars for you know a system of like two to five uh mesh nodes and it just seems it's too expensive when most people can get one powerful wi-fi router for 90 bucks or maybe two with a you know a router and a a uh, extender for maybe 100 40, 150 that are more of a pain to configure, but typically you only configure once. So if you like the ease and you like the smartphone interface and you want something you never have to deal with, then mesh is the approach, but you're going to pay a premium for that now, but um, not indefinitely into the future. And thus is our, thus has our podcast run its course, I believe. 
Any more news for this Yay. week? We hit the we. No, I got nothing. You got nothing. Nothing's happening. Well, so next week we'll uh, um, our, our uh, earnings canary earlier. If you uh, if you heard that earnings canary. If you reach this point, you've heard the earnings canary. Then uh, we'll be discussing earnings next week. Otherwise, we've discussed it earlier in this episode. It's like a it's like a uh, quantum superposition of podcasts that we're doing now. A Schrodinger's cat podcast, uh, Schrodinger's cat cast, something like that. Podcast, and uh, that's it for this week, though. So, Susie, great to talk to you again. Yeah, you too. Thank you for putting up with my rambling. And listeners, the same. And folks, you can find us, of course, at Macworld.com. And if you want to leave comments, you can leave them at Macworld.com slash Facebook, where we put up posts uh, about different articles and link to them. And you can leave comments there. I do check them. I know we go through and see what people are saying, get some discussion going there. If you're not a Facebook user, you can use this thing called email. Email us podcast at Macworld.com. We get those emails you'll notice that we listen to you if you give us feedback through various sources or you're sending us problems to mac 901 at macworld.com or wherever you send it to we're trying to figure out what's going on with y'all and um, and then talk about it get some answers for you so that's where you find us uh i've been glenn fleischman a senior contributor at macworld and this has been the macworld podcast episode 544 for february 1st 2017 and as always we will be back next week thank you for listening